Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Jammed house at Shea. What a show. 8-8. Piazza, two down. Mets have scored six runs with two away. Piazza rips it. Will it stay fair? Goodbye, home run! Mike Piazza! A three-run homer! 11 to It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Tuesday, October the 13th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well, welcome into... Another edition of the podcast, and as I had tweeted out yesterday, I have a special guest, and if you didn't know from the intro that I played, it's uh, Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza, Hall of Famer, uh, Mets Hall of Famer, former catcher for the 2000 pennant-winning Mets, will be joining us. Uh, Mike joined us, if you're new to the show, in the last few months and weren't around last year in 2019, but Mike did join the show back in the summer of 2019. It was different, but we we basically went back and we discussed his career, and I tried to get 
maybe him to talk about some different things about his career than the obvious stuff. Everybody always likes to talk about the 9-11 home run. Everybody likes to talk about the Roger Clemens beaning. You know, those are talk radio time filler topics that there are things to talk about, but his career was so much more than that. But today, you know, I had a chance to interact with Mike uh, a couple of weeks back, and I said, hey, wouldn't it be cool? You guys didn't have an opportunity to come back to City Field because of the pandemic. Um would it be cool just to look back at the 2000 Mets? Now, you know, I know what sometimes people say. That, you know, we have the winning and misery mindset in this town. I was actually recently talking, not talking, but I was listening to a, a J.J. Reddick's podcast and they had Carmelo Anthony on, different sport, and the topic of championships and how it changes maybe the narrative about a player came up. And uh, I think the, the thesis of what Carmelo had said is like, look, there's a lot more to me as a player than just one thing. I mean, and, and I've always told people there's a lot of mediocre players that you probably have never heard of that had maybe two years or a year in the league and they have championship rings and that's a cool moment. Uh, and I, I don't think the absence of that, although it does put a different spin on a career or a different narrative on a career, I don't think an absence of a championship ring for a group or a player means that it's it's totally invalidating what they achieved and accomplished. And, and I think this team, specifically this 2000 team, is a synopsis, I think, of not only what Mets history has been, you know, a team that wasn't the most talented, had an opportunity, you know, some small things didn't go their way that could have changed the course of history. And uh, I think we remember for the grit and the professionalism and, and the personality that that team had and and I always say the 2000 Mets can't be appreciated in a vacuum you have to go back all the way to May of 1998 when Mike Piazza came over when at that point after eight years and I think 97 was a nice season that was a fun team too it was a team that surprised everybody and and had some really good players and, and probably overachieved in a lot of ways because that was a team that was pegged for 100 losses and was coming off 90 losses, and they had lost all their young pitching. But starting with May of 98, because the Mets were not drawing, they didn't have any star power, they had some nice players, you know, Al Leiter, John Olerud, but there was more Todd Pratt in that roster, good role players, than, you know, a, a championship, championship team would have. And then the Mets go out and they surprisingly acquire Mike Piazza, a moment that most Mets fans will always remember because it's a, a, a franchise-defining moment, a generation-defining moment. And everybody remembers kind of where they were and what, as a sports fan, what was going on. And from that point forward, from that, Mike resigning, Al Leiter resigning, the 99 season, which ended so bitterly because that team went on a roll, got hot. They were one of the best teams in baseball. Other teams recognized it, and they fell short in dramatic fashion to the Braves. And going into 2000... The next step for everybody was to win it all and get to the world, get to the World Series and win it all. That was it. There really was nothing else for that team to do. And you'll hear Mike talk about that. I had a chance to catch up with him yesterday. And he's going to tell you some surprising things. I think you're going to learn a little bit how their mindset was coming into spring training. I think one of the things that Mike, and what I said in the last podcast when we had him on, and Al Leiter has been, if you listen to him on MLB Network, anytime they talk about Piazza, I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about is his game calling, his ability to lead a pitching staff. Everybody remembers Mike at the end of his career when he couldn't throw runners out. 
in a division that had Luis Castillo and and Juan Pierre. I mean, you guys laugh now. Luis Castillo, those were speedsters. Luis Castillo was Andres Jimenez, who we're all looking at right now when he first came up. So there's a lot more to the Mike Piazza story, and I think he was the heart and soul of this team. And if you look at the roster, you have Piazza and Alfonso, elite offensive players. Alfonso, if you start looking at advanced metrics, actually was the sixth best value, sixth most valuable player that year in all of baseball. You had Leiter and Hampton, who statistically came out as top 10 pitchers in the National League. Uh, actually, I should say the National League for Alfonso, too, because I'm just talking about the National League. But And you're in an era of offense. You look at the Cardinals and the Giants. Everybody talks about the Yankees and the Yankees dynasty, and it's amazing what they were able to accomplish during that period of time. But the Giants and the Cardinals were outstanding offensive teams. We talk today with all the home runs. Hey, let's just average five runs a game. Get five runs a game and you'll be able to win. These teams were averaging 5.5, 5.6, 5.7, five and a half, six runs a game. I mean, Colorado Rockies, I know it's Colorado, are averaging six runs a game. And I get what people are going to say. Oh, the enhancements and stuff. Throw that away. They still had to play. Everybody was playing under the same, you know, rules. Let's put it out there. So the Mets, who took a step back offensively by losing Olrud, had a couple of good starters, had a good bullpen, a bullpen that I was just complaining about how many walks the current Mets bullpen has. I mean, this Mets bullpen walked a bunch of guys, too. I was like four four out of nine. But they knew how to get big outs and big games. They knew how to pitch the players. They weren't an overwhelming group. When you take away Piazza's star power, and Alfonso was an emerging star, and Hampton was, uh, in his prime, is a very good ace-type player. Now lighter, I think, uh, a little bit underrated. I mean, he was a perfect New York guy. You had perfect veterans who knew how to play the game, were having fun and embracing New York. They had a manager. I mean, you guys know him, you know, with the mustache and everything. But Bobby Valentine was a polarizing manager, had a lot of character, was always quoted in the paper, sometimes to a point where maybe he distracted his own team. But it was it was like a Netflix drama. It really was. And if you talk about the 2000 Mets, you have to talk about 98. And it would start in May of 98. That would be episode one. And then it would end with Piazza flying out to Bernie Williams with his magic hand. It's always those Ghosts, they made their way over from the Bronx, swoop Piazza's home run that would have tied Game 5, and maybe send the Mets, tie in that game, and maybe the Mets go on, and maybe send them off to, you know, Yankee Stadium, and who knows what happens. It would have been very difficult to win two in a row at Yankee Stadium, but with that team, you don't know. Because when you start to break down the advanced analytics with the Pythagorean theorem, one-loss record, this is a middle-of-the-pack very similar outcome team to 97 and 98 teams that had some you know, serious holes in certain different parts of the roster. Even the 1976 Mets in the middle of all that late seventies misery, they had that one season 76, which some of the baby boomer fans will remember where they won 86 games. That team grades out from an advanced statistics and advanced run, run uh, scoring and run prevention Better than the 2000 Mets, a pennant-winning team. And this team is different, I think, certainly than 86 and 69 and 73 with the outstanding Hall of Fame pitching. And you have 2006 with the elite offense. And and that team didn't go to the World Series, but you know, teams like, you know, fans like to put that team in there. And then 2015, which had the young pitchers. Not a lot of offense with young pitchers. This team had... You know, five or six really big-time stars, and then the other 19 or 20 guys in the roster were veterans that just filled out their role. Nothing sexy. 
Some of those guys were towards the end of their career. Some of those guys were in the middle of a career that was very short. But they all came together. Jay Payton getting big hits. Turk Wendell getting big outs. John Franco saying, hey, I don't have to be the closer and seeding to Benitez. And look, for all that people criticize Benitez, the big home runs he gave up, some of the frustrating, agonizing, worst losses in Mets history that he was on the mound for. They don't get where they got to get without his elite performance against teams like the Milwaukee Brewers. Because remember, when you win a pennant, it's as important to get those April and May wins when you could blow those games uh, than it is to beat the Braves or win game, you know, win game 162 like this Mets group did in 1999. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Mike Piazza, Hall of Famer, member of the 2000 Mets, we're going to share some memories about that season, get his perspective, his take. So buckle up, take a deep breath, and let's go into the time machine, and we'll be back with more right after this. Bonds waiting, choking up on the bat from the left side. Miller set to run. 3-2 pitch. On the inside corner, strike three called. The ball game is over. Franco strikes out Barry Bonds with a 3-2 off-speed pitch, and the Mets have won the ball game. And they're all out to congratulate John Franco. The Mets have tied up the series with a 10-inning victory here at Pac Bell Park. Hits it to deep left center. 13th inning. Mets win game three. To center. Peyton. And Bobby Jones has done it. A one-hit shutout. A masterpiece. And the Mets have defeated the Giants. And they are heading for St. Louis. Into center field. That's a base hit. It gets by Edmonds in to score McEwing. Down to second and now heading for third is Peyton. And he's there with only one out. The Mets leading 6-5 in the ninth. 2-2 pitch. Into the center field. Into the gap. Off the wall. Perez scores. Piazza scores. Here comes Ventura. Three-run double for Seal. Hampton with a count of three and one. For the first time since 1986, the Mets are going to the World Series. It's been 20 years. Mets didn't have a chance to celebrate, but 20 years ago, the 2000 Mets won a pennant. And we're going to look back with uh, one of the guys from that team. He's joining us again, Mike Piazza. And Mike, uh, you know, in 1989, I remember going to Old Timers Day at Shea Stadium and watching the 69 Mets. And I remember telling my dad, geez, that's so long ago. And now I'm talking to you 20 years after the 2000 Mets. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not that long ago. So welcome to the program. How you doing? Um, well, it's uh, great to speak with you again. And, uh, of course, under the present circumstances, it would have been fun to be at the stadium and, and have a nice celebration. But uh, this is the next best thing. So, um, no, thanks for having me. And it, as you mentioned, it was really uh, – it was a special team, a special team to be a part of. So, when I look back at that ball club, it brings me a lot of, uh, a lot of smiles when I think of the memories. Now, I'm um – Listening to a lot of podcasts on, uh, you know, those who do 
television series like The Office, Entourage. It's interesting to hear about actors and how they look back. And what consistent theme they have is like, during the moment, they're really not into talking about their craft. It's the job. And when they look back, they seem to be enjoying it more. They, they remember things. Uh, is that the same for you? You know, you're looking back at that team and, and a wild time. Do you appreciate it more? The things you're learning that you didn't know in the moment? As an athlete, do you feel the same as you, as you look back at that 2000 team? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think when you're in the cauldron, so to speak, and you're going through the ups and downs and, and you're going through the uh, everything that is the, the good and the bad about playing in New York, you, you sort of develop a shell uh, and you have to protect yourself. For me, at least personally, um, I had to do what I had to do to be as productive as I could be. And so when I found myself getting a little too wrapped up in, in the um, – you know, reading too much in the media or getting too wrapped up into the drama of, of what that was entailing as far as the team, I had to kind of shut myself off and really refocus and get back to just basics and hitting the ball as hard as I could and catching good games for, for the guys on the staff. And so uh, that, to kind of answer your question, now this 20 years removed, yeah, it's there's no pressure and you're able to enjoy. And, and we did have a lot of fun on that team. That's what I will say. We had a lot of interesting guys and we had a lot of fun. So it was a, it was a great team to be a part of, no question. I always say that 2000 season can't be looked at in its own vacuum. You know, it's almost like a Netflix, Netflix series. You guys, 98, <laughs> come close, you fall short. 99, very emotional. It's actually the whole season in a way started in May of 98 when you came over and they changed the team there. Uh, going into 2000, was there a sense of unfinished business? Because it was, a, from what I remember, the 99 loss was a very emotional locker room. And I wonder if any of that carried over. Some new faces, but carried over into spring training. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, I think uh, 99 was a huge letdown. We thought we had the team that was capable of winning the pennant and eventually getting to the World Series and, and making a, a, uh, a real run in a World's Championship. Um, and I tell people all the time, it's pretty funny when we were going through those series and people were saying, oh, you know, they had your number and, and those games we played against Atlanta were really difficult for us. But I said to uh, tell people all the time, I'm like, well, you know, we were going up against, uh, you know, four Hall of Famers. So it's like, you know, when you have Chipper Jones and that pitching staff. So as we joked before, because the people say, oh, that, you know, that we underachieve. But I said, I don't know about overachieving or underachieving, but I thought we, we played very well against a great team. And I think uh, uh, they probably look back and thought they probably should have won a few more world championships with that ball club as, as has been brought up many times. But nonetheless, it was uh, it really was different coming into 2000 because obviously Johnny uh, Olerud left the team and I and I thought he was a real catalyst on our on our offense and defense as well and much has been made about that infield uh with the you know obviously robin and and ray and fonzie and and johnny so um to only have that kind of more or less for one season was was a little bit of a letdown so i would say coming into 2000 we weren't really as optimistic as we were the the year before that's interesting, uh, because if you look, it's, well, it's a different team. More, more pitching base, more bullpen base, less offense. And um, it may not even be the best team 
out of the, well, certainly not as good as 99, I'm not sure about 98. But when you look at the, the total stats, you guys were middle of the pack in offense. Uh, your pitching was good. But the teams you played leading up to the World Series, even the Yankees, were a lot better than you. It's almost like the parts added up to a lot more than what the numbers do. Looking back 20, you know, I was looking at this stuff 20 years later. I'm like, wow, I, it seemed like you guys were a lot better than the numbers indicate. That's why you can't always look at those numbers. So true. And, and I think so much has been made about numbers in the last decade, the way the game has evolved. The one thing they don't take into account is momentum and the ability of guys. But when you have to, when you have a team that would be quote unquote, not what we consider the top talent, you have to have production from a lot of guys that you wouldn't necessarily expect to. And I think we had a lot of really interesting role guys that enjoyed stepping up for lack of a better term. I kind of hate that term. It's been overused, but um, picking us up in certain ways. And, and I think we had a certain gel, you know, Todd Zeal came over obviously. Uh, and I thought did a really respectable job at first base and handled the bat very well. And, um, you know, we obviously made the trade with Mike Bordick and, and Bubba Trammell. And so it just seemed like we had fun and, you know, with, with Pat Mahomes and Lenny Harrison and, and keeping us loose. And as you mentioned, the really, really good bullpen, uh, which I think was definitely underrated. Uh, we, we were able to just kind of bootstrap it and just gut, gut it out and grind out wins. And it was fun. What memory from that regular season? Now, there's, the postseason is what everybody remembers in the Subway Series. Uh, obviously, there was the, the drama. You know, everybody knew mm -hmm. a million times with Clemens. But you had some <laughs> other good memories. Uh, the Japan Series, the 10-run inning where you highlighted at with your home run. Uh, yeah. you have, uh, they were just playing it recently. You got Robin Ventura imitating you during a rain delay. Like, what like, when you go and win a pennant, there's always the playoffs. But are there some – and maybe it's not any of those memories. Are there things that – stand out to you when you remember about that team for either you personally or maybe a time when you're like, hey, you know, this is really starting to gel and come together and maybe something special is happening. Well, as far as, far as the team, but more myself personally, I remember having a really bad slump uh, early September and we weren't playing that well. And I think there was one game where I, I think it was less than two outs and the winning run was on third. I think I either punched out or popped up or something. And then Robin Ventura came up and picked me up and drove in the winning run and we won the game. It was, um, it, it was kind of like a, we were able to rebound from that. And then I think going into the playoffs, we had momentum, we had confidence. And that's something I don't think, and we talked about the short season, I mean, in a long season like that, you're going to have lulls and you're going to have uh, streaks and you're going to have streaks, both good and bad. And for a time, I think, my job was obviously the guy that people look to sort of ignite the team and bring us out of a, get the big hit when we needed it. But I think at that point, obviously from the fatigue of the season and catching every day, I was kind of really grinding down a little bit, but we were able to rebound from that. I think it was about two or three weeks. And, and to personally, I think I would say, um, I felt like, I mean, I really wanted to win the MVP that year. I felt like that was the year that I was really, um, deserved it. And then I think when I had that slump, it was kind of like the writers were kind of use, using that as an excuse or at least a reason why I didn't deserve it because it was down the stretch. And I, 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 I'm cool with that. I mean, it is what it is. I'm glad we were able to get to the World Series. And, but we had some, as I, getting back to the, the point, I mean, Timo Perez came in and really ignited us and played well in the playoffs. But I, I think just 
we were able to get by that area. And I think that was a real stressful time that could have probably broke the team, but we were able to rebound from that and carry momentum into the postseason. Yep. And that's after you guys had the, the slump last year. I remember uh, that was a lot of talk. There was a lot of pressure on you guys. And, and for you, uh, that was your best statistical year as a Met. Um, and, and the year before you had maybe got a little bit tired and I know you got hurt in the postseason. Uh, but you know, together for you personally, that was almost as good as any. And, and that's the thing that people say, well, Piazza's numbers with the Dodgers are always better with the Mets. But that was the one year where you were about the same player as you were with the Dodgers from the totality as you are with the Mets. And, uh, you know, just Jeff Kent, I guess, was just, you know, from a writer's standpoint, they looked at the Giants and Kent and Bonds and went over there and they gave them the MVP. So uh, that was probably your best year, though, statistically, as a Met, you would have to say, right? Oh, no question. I would put that year against any one of my years. Obviously, 97 was a big year uh, for me. Uh, offensive and probably one of the better ones at the position uh, in the history of the game. But putting that aside, yes. I mean, but but another thing for me personally was the fact that that I was doing it in New York. And still, even though it was the second year, having the big contract, having all those expectations, I felt like there was a lot more pressure, whereas it was a little different in L.A. I was a little bit more, how do you say, just it was – you know, it was free and it was a different media market. It was just a little more laid back. But coming to New York, I really wanted to put my stamp uh, as being a franchise player and, and having the hardware to prove it and coming to New York. So, um, but again, I don't be, begrudge Jeff Kent. I mean, he was a great player and obviously Barry was right behind him. So um, I was glad that we were able to at least get to the postseason because if we, did, if we didn't win, it would have been probably it would have been a lot worse for me. So putting all the, what I felt like, you know, the, the hardware aside, I'm glad we were able to at least, you know, sort of sneak in and, and, and do some damage in the postseason. Now, you know, what your best moments may be for that season is not even with the bat. I mean, here you got the Cardinals and the Giants you play in the postseason Two, I mean, I couldn't believe the kind of runs those teams put up. Again, I'm looking at the, the numbers before we get on. I'm like, wow, they talk about offense today. Those are teams that, you know, five and a half, six runs a game. Um, Bobby Jones throws a no-hitter against the Giants. Mike Hampton basically stifles the Cardinals. Three games, you were behind the plate for all three. Uh, if, if I had to make an argument, your, your game calling as a catcher was far more important than anything you did with the bat throughout that entire postseason with those three games being – huge and, and probably getting you to the World Series. Well, yeah, no question. I mean, I, I loved catching uh, Mike Hampton. He's a guy that kind of maybe gets a little bit lost in, in the, the background because he, because he left New York the year after. Uh, but he was a big key for us. I mean, he pitched some great games and he was a great athlete. I mean, I remember when I was young coming up in the league and I made a joke with Jeff Bagwell. I said, you know, he, he's a pretty good pitcher. And he said, he's a great hitter too. So I mean, yeah. he could handle the bat. He was a great athlete and he was a catalyst. I mean, I think he really set the tone on the pitching staff and Al followed and, you know, we had the characters in the bullpen, but uh, yes, I mean, look, I, I felt these guys really made my job easy behind the plate because they were throwing so well, but I did have to keep them focused. And then, didn't swing the bat great in the Giants series, but kind of came alive, obviously, in the St. Louis series. I mean, I got a big hit. Um, I forget. It might have been game one, drove in a few runs, and it just kind of got everyone going. So even though 
I knew catching and calling a game and, and doing my job behind the plate was huge. I knew I also had to swing the bat. So when I got those big hits and, you know, John Stearns with the, with the you know, monsters out of the yep. cage and, and, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. So um, that was big too. So, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it and, and I enjoyed the feedback I got from the guys, the energy I got from the guys, uh, you know, sort of, I mean, I remember uh, Dennis Cook with his uh, Texas draw saying, and he used to say, he had a joke, he used to call me sissy boy, basically, you know, obviously insulting me, thinking, you know, calling me a wimp. Let's use, uh, you know, let's use uh, nice terms, I guess. But he basically said, I'm going to ride you, boy, all the way to the World Series. I'm going to ride you, boy. Like, you know, he was saying, we're going to ride you to the World Series. So it, it was a fun team. Uh, it, guys kept me loose, and we, we definitely, we had a blast, and that's why I think we won. When you look at some of the things that people talk about today, we mentioned analytics, you know, baseball's in a vacuum. There's no momentum. But if you look at you guys, you guys lose game one against the Giants. Then you have that big game two win with Peyton's hit and, and the strikeout, classic at-bat against Bonds. And it almost seemed like you guys took that and rode that all the way into the World Series into game one against the Yankees. Is there momentum? Did you guys feel kind of a, a snowball effect in a positive way? There's a lot of debate about that. But you guys are a perfect example where one good moment and all of a sudden now, next day you win. Next day. It's almost like everything kind of yeah. snowballs into something really special. Well, I mean, I think after the JT Snow home run, which we, I think we had discussed before and, and was the to kind of comeback from that, because under any normal circumstances, that would have buried a team. I think it would have been easy for us to just roll over and die and they would have won the series. And, and we right away, I mean, I remember, I forget who it was. Someone on the team made a comment and I, and I couldn't believe it because he said, even though it, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit because when he hit the home run, it was a huge home run. Obviously the, the place went nuts. And, uh, but he put both hands up and I thought they they had won the game you know, it kind of in the, in my moment, I looked at him like I thought they had won the game. And then someone said, you only put one arm up for a big home run when you don't win the game. You don't put both arms up like, you you know, the game was over. And I said, oh, I said, yeah. And he goes, we're going to come back and win this game. And then boom, Daryl Hamilton. And, and like you said, Jay Payton. And it just, just to snatch it from him like that at home, I think was huge. I mean, no question about it. And then Johnny striking out Barry was, was a big out. Um, and yes, no question about it. Like you said, I mean, it, it it's kind of sad in a way because I think with all these numbers and it's so much wrapped up in analytics and number, it's like you lose a little bit of the personalities and personalities are huge and momentum is huge and fun. And I, I just don't want to see the game so austere and static, you know, just we had fun, you know, the, the tension with Bobby and, you know, I've said before, I enjoy managers that just, the managers today are smart guys, no question about it, but they just, they don't have the big personalities like the Bobby Valentine, Tommy Lasorda's, you know, the, the Whitey Herzogs and, and uh, Earl Weavers and, and Sparkies, you know, it was kind of like that era was the era that I really fell in love with baseball. You mentioned Bobby because he's polarizing because there's always debate about his tenure. Look, he was very successful as a Mets manager. I know we had a bunch of controversies. They even relived some of these controversies recently. <laughs> the, the Worthen, the, I was reading about the Worthen School of Business one. I, I remember that, and I'm like, think about that today. Um, but if you look at the things he did with your team, with messing around with the lineup, putting guys in positions, whether it be Benny Agbayani or Bubba Trammell, 
or even just riding Timo Perez because that was that was you know he had no time in at all during the regular season. Um, could you give like there's always a polarizing view of Bobby. Is there the could you give the you played for him a long time? I'm sure not everything was yeah. cream. Could you not give a balanced all. view of Bobby? Because <laughs> you know a lot of people I don't think, especially younger fans that may not have experienced him, they probably have somewhat maybe of a negative view because of the controversies and some of the other stuff. He's more than the guy with the mustache and the duck. Let's put it that way. Yeah, okay, I'll try and do this in two parts. I mean, first, the good. Um, charming guy, sweetheart guy. Obviously, when you meet him, he ingratiates you. You feel, um, and it's sincere. I mean, it's not fake. I mean, he is a, he is a charming guy, uh, smart as hell. One of the smartest baseball guys I've ever seen. Extremely well at evaluating talent. Uh, now to swing over to the other side, huge ego, um, kind of like, a, a, you know, one of these gamblers. I, I play a little bit of Texas Hold'em poker, and you're playing with these guys at the table, and you're trying to figure them out. You know, you're trying to figure out tells and whatnot, and it just seemed like he was that guy that shoved in every hand, you know, and really liked to let it roll. I remember one game, I think we were playing Baltimore in an inter-league uh, game, and there was um, – I don't know if there was a DH. Yeah, I think it was DH because we were playing in Baltimore. But he took away the DH and somehow did some kind of move to where basically took the DH away. I don't know if I was catching or involved. I can't quite remember the details. You might want to look it up. But, you know, I remember all the media saying, you know, oh, he's, you know, he liked getting criticized so he could shove it, you know, where the sun doesn't shine to people. And I think that was good and bad. And, and, he used to play little tricks as far as just to mo try to motivate me. Like I, I wrote about it in my book one day where he said, Oh, you have off tomorrow. And then I came walking in and I was in the lineup, you know, I caught like a weekend. It was a day game after night game. And I thought I was going to be off. And then he had told the media before that, you know, he was kind of playing with my head a little bit and I was furious, you know, I wanted to just basically knock him out, <laughs> but I kind of, you know, I grit my teeth. I got through it. I think we won the game. So if that makes any sense, I mean, again, I, I don't. I mean, do that was, today. couldn't do that today. People be players, the media. That would be a much more controversial thing today, what you just described, than back then. Back then, no was, question about it. Yeah, it was no it question was, about it. And, and and so I think the point is, I mean, you know, I remember Chris Wheeler from the Phillies used to couldn't stand Bobby. I mean, and used to call him Top Step Bobby. You know, yep. so he'd always be on the top step of the dugout, you know, kind of head in the stands, you know, like, hey, look at me, you know, and he had that little bit of a sort of a Hollywood mentality where, but, you know, look, I, I said before, I, I, I always thought when you look at a person, and for me as a player, look, I could play for anyone. I played hard. I, I didn't like always sometimes a little bit of the mental judo that he would, he would do. But ultimately, as a player, if you play hard, you keep your nose down, and you don't really try to get inside his head, you, you, you can survive and you can thrive. When you talk about the World Series, I, I talk about how this was like a Netflix drama over, you know, three years. Your game's the Yankees. I, I tell everybody today, the Subway Series, that's the golden era. It got – it was good for a while after you left the Mets, maybe those early years with Wright and Reyes. But it's not yeah. the – maybe it's too much. But when you look, I think you guys played them six times in the regular season. You played them another five times in the uh, postseason. That's 11 times. For the most part, they were close games. There was drama. 
look, we know the fans dislike the other fan base and it can get heated. It's a game. Um, you guys are in the same union. You guys have maybe played with each other at different times. Was there really a rivalry there or was it all overstated? Now that you can look back, how heated were those games? And obviously it was personal for you because of what happened with Clemens and, and some of the drama that it, yeah. you know, happened a few months earlier as you were going into that World Series. Well, I think as a player, my rule of thumb was sort of respect everyone, fear no one. Um, and so, yeah, we had a general respect for them. I mean, how could you not? I mean, they were, they were a World Series team. They had won a bunch. Joe uh, Torrey always came up to me and was always very, very gracious. We never detected any hint of uh, animosity or um, uh, extraneous sort of negativity. You know, we, we, we balled, but, and I think we had general respect for each other and the games were very competitive, as you said. I don't know if it's time or just the fact that sort of the newness is worn off, but I think because both of those teams were quote unquote built probably to, to, to get to the postseason and hopefully beyond the postseason and win, there was a certain amount of uh, tenacity and a certain amount of electricity coming down. And then, you know, I mean, again, I've, everywhere I go, I always laugh when people I'm like, play in a golf tournament. And I said, look, do you have any Roger Clemens questions now so we can enjoy the day? Because I mean, I've talked about it ad nauseum, you know, many times. And, and I guess maybe he's sort of not really addressed it ever. And just as always figures, you know, just bunker mentality and just act like it never happened, which is fine too. I mean, maybe in a sort of, it was cathartic for me to sort of. So you guys never talked about it. You guys have never actually 20 years later, just look back and said, Hey, so you guys, it's it's still pretty much, it sounds like it's still a little chilly or distant from 20 years no, ago. No, I mean, look, I mean, I always, no question. I mean, when someone basically is trying to kill you, you know, you, yep. you obviously, uh, you take it personally and it it's something that uh, you don't know, you don't get over quickly, but looking back, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a religious guy. I mean, I believe in forgiveness and, and he's never really reached out and I don't expect him to. I mean, if he did, I would take his call if there was no sort of agenda to it, or if there was no sort of like, he's doing it to, to sort of with a, any sort of ulterior motive, just to kind of say, Hey, you know, I felt bad about it. It was a mistake. Fine. But again, I don't expect it. And uh, I think you do have to realize that there is a certain point where you have to kind of put it behind you and just move on. And, and, uh, and I say all the time when people say, well, how do you feel? I go, I'm glad I'm still alive. Really? Right. <laughs> because, you know, obviously, if it was if it was a little lower, it hit me in the eye. It could have been it could have been a lot worse. So, I mean, just blessed I got through it. And then again, you know, as I've said many times, if once you lose that edge, uh, you know, I faced them a couple times after that, and and never really had any fear. Uh, then you you should be doing something else. So, as much as it was a personal challenge to me, I mean, I'm glad I did rebound from it. And then obviously, in the World Series of hitting the home run off Jeff Nelson to me was one of my greatest accomplishments because he was so very difficult and hard to face for right-handed hitters. But seems like it gets a little bit lost in the whole shuffle with the drama and the bad issue. But for me, it doesn't. And so what I feel about it to me is most important. That was a tough team. That was a tough bullpen. Uh, During the pandemic, when there was no baseball, they were playing game one again. And I had a chance to watch it. What's interesting is you watch it again, you still cringe and go, ah, they only did this. And and I don't know if there's a what if, but everybody talks about Timo Perez and not running and getting thrown out. And then there's the Paul O'Neill walk, that classic at bat. Uh, But here's another thing that I I forgot about. 
Kurt Abbott almost hit one out at the top of the ninth that would have given the, you guys an insurance run. And that didn't happen. And if that ball goes out at Yankee Stadium to right field, it's 5-3, whatever the score would have been. Much different ninth inning, much tougher. Is there is that game, do you feel that it's more is made by losing game one than, than should be? And are there what-ifs that still, to a certain degree, haunt you a little bit from either that game or other parts of that series? Because it was close. And for a 4-1 series, I don't think the Yankees were just being played. That could have flipped very easily uh, in, in a moment's notice if, if a couple of things went your guys' way. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I, I remember – I'm pretty sure I was uh, DH in that game. I think Todd Pratt was catching. So I remember it was horrible for me because one thing that I've always enjoyed in huge games is being behind the plate because – I don't know if this makes any sense. I just feel like there's less pressure back there than watching it. I mean, I feel like you have the destiny in front of you. And, and again, with Armando, one of those things where if it wasn't for Armando, we wouldn't be there. So you always have to kind of look at the positive. And, and I think when, when he – and truth be told, I think he did every now and then. He had a little bit of trouble with left-handed hitters. You know, he didn't really feel 100% confident about going inside – and I tried to always get them to cut the ball inside against good left-handed hitters and maybe throw a pitch they couldn't really keep fair, especially like a guy like Paul O'Neill. I mean, and so when I saw him kind of leaking away and leaking away and not being able to put that out of the way, I knew that that was a, that was a momentum shifter, as we had mentioned before. So that was very difficult to watch. Does not winning a championship change anything would have been a nice little cherry on top of your career look you have a hall of fame career you have great moments uh carmelo anthony was actually talking about this on a podcast recently because you know everybody talks about how you know you haven't won a championship and everything is based on that now but i think you know (laughs) how hard it is to win i think it's oversimplified in the media winning especially winning it all everything has to go right um I don't think it changes people's careers. Obviously, it's always a conversation. Does not winning have any kind of, uh, you know, instead of 100%, 99.9 or 99% feeling of what the Mike Piazza career narrative, you know, turned Hmm. out to be? Well, I can honestly say when you look at my career, it it really, when you step back and you look at it maybe from 10,000 feet, the fact where I came from and what I have accomplished going through so much um i can't really say that i have any more i have a negative sentiment by not winning a world series i mean yes no question would have been nice no question would have been great to take that uh the parade down uh uh broadway to to you know a ticker ten that's one thing i really when you look at the Seavers and you look at the 86 team that I really wanted to do, I wanted to be on that float and uh, go down the, the, you know, the alley of champions or the, the, that parade of champions. But look, Mike, I mean, at the end of the day, I just believe in thanking God for what you have, not for what you don't have. And I had a great career. If you start looking at it any different way, except being completely grateful and completely thankful, then you're not a guy I want to hang out with because, you know, I, I don't believe in being bitter. I just believe in being grateful. I played with some great guys. We had a lot of fun on that team. And yes, as you pointed out with a few little breaks here and there, could we have won it? No question. Would it have been nice to go back and look back and maybe say, Hey, that was a world championship team. No question about it. But I mean, once you get there and the series itself, it just, 
was very frustrating. A few things could have gone our way, but that's baseball. I mean, that's baseball. And as you mentioned, I mean, look at some teams that have been spending egregious amounts of money the last 10 years to try to win a championship. And uh, I remember, I mean, I heard this, believe it or not, my first day, you said, it's hard to win. It's hard to win. Everything has to go right. And so I take my hat off to the champions, no question about it. But it's not going to ruin my day. Or when I look back, it's not going to look, I'm not going to look back with any less enthusiasm or, or enjoyment or, or less grateful, no question. And uh, one other thing that everybody talks about is when you're there. I know it's the World Series. It's the Yankees. It's stressful. Do you feel you enjoyed it as much as you can? I remember David Wright talking about this in 2015 and really saying, hey, especially to some of the young guys, you don't know when you're going to get back. I don't know what your mindset was when that ball landed in Bernie Williams' glove. To this day, everybody says, how did that not go out? That's the Shea Stadium. <laughs> That's Shea Stadium, Death Valley again. Uh, you know, I think today with the ball, that thing not only goes out, Mike, it probably goes, you know, you know, 150 rows back with the way the ball is. But separate story. Um, yeah. Was Did you enjoy it, number one, as we wrap up here? Did you enjoy it? And, and did you get a sense that that was it? Or did you think many – because obviously things changed after that, some bad breaks with signings. Uh, those are things out of your control. But, yeah, you know, yeah. you have to act as if this is it. Even though I think probably as a player you don't want to admit this could be your only shot. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, no question. I mean, I mean, did I have fun? Mm, I think the momentum sort of ended at least that first game one when we weren't able to put that away. And I think that was a big, big swing. After that, you get a little bit, even though you say, hey, come on, guys, let's go. We can do this. There is a little bit of a lack of a better word, a little bit of a dark cloud that comes in and you got to kick it. And you got to turn the page on that, but we didn't have the time. I mean, it's one thing if you have another month to play and you're able to sort of string together, maybe pull out a last game of the series and do what I mean, you're, we ran out of time. That's pretty much the, the, the sand comes out of the hourglass, so to speak. So um, that to me is the only disappointment because I felt like we were coming into that uh, series with a lot of momentum and then just boom. Uh, as you mentioned, the home run, the, the, the Abbott shot that was short, uh, obviously the Benitez against Paul O'Neill. Um, yeah, it, it, it does hurt, no question about it. But, but again, you, you got to, as you look back in its entirety, you have to, you have to not um, – you can't not be excited. You, you, you're excited, and, and it was fun. And as I said, we, we had a lot of fun. And uh, – it with Ricky. I mean, Ricky, I mean, you could tell Ricky Henderson stories for days. So we really enjoyed it. And uh, it, it was what it was, but we, we just, uh, just fell short. Yep. At Mike Piazza 31 on Twitter, Piazza 31.com. So what do you got coming up, Mike? Obviously, um, you know, there's the postseason now. We don't know what 2021 will bring. You know, you guys are supposed to be back at City Field for obvious reasons. You couldn't be. Um, I mean, are the 2020, are the 2000 Mets doing anything, you know, outside of, uh, City Field? I mean, do you guys still talk? I mean, what, what's next, not only for you, but for the group? Because I guess you kind of lost out on a chance to get back and connect with the fans because of no fault to you guys own. Yeah, it's look, because of the, the pandemic, it's just, a, it's a horrible, uh, it's just been a horrible year altogether. I mean, and, and the people that have passed away, uh, it's just been a very, um, uh, it's, a, it's been a challenge, no question about it. Uh, look, I mean, obviously with the new ownership coming in with the Mets, um, we talked before, I'm very much into the alumni. Uh, I love going back and meeting the fans. 
uh, meeting the sponsors, going to the little leagues and going to the, the children's hospitals. And that's something I will hopefully continue to do in the next, uh, with the next uh, owner and administration. So I'm excited about that. And, and I, I think the world uh, will get better. I mean, I'm an optimist at this point in my life. I really look forward to coming back and um, celebrating Mets heritage. I mean, I, I was instrumental in sort of trying to reignite the whole heritage. I mean, MetsHeritage.com is a website the fans should check out with um, an amazing company uh, called Heritage Works down in Atlanta. And they took all the Mets classic memorabilia and bats and balls and gloves and metadata it and photographed it. And you could check out the stories. And so uh, for Mets fans that really enjoy history, that, that check out MetsHeritage.com. Uh, I'm going to be involved, uh, you know, as I said, just, just hopefully we can do something next year. I mean, there's a Seaver statue that will definitely happen. Um, so all these things are on hold. So I, I, I implore Mets fans to be patient, to be optimistic. And I think the best days are in front of us. And I'm looking forward to, to reconnecting with all the fans and staying involved because I truly enjoy it. Well, you've been good to the show. I appreciate you spending some time. I know you're enjoying yourself over there in Italy. I'm sure we'll see you at the ballpark soon. And we're looking forward to more from uh, the Mets heritage and looking back at not only your career, but others. So thanks again, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, you too, Mike. And thanks what you do. And uh, look, you know, let's go Mets. Let's uh, turn the page and have a great season next year. God bless, man. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. A uh, couple of quick things. First of all, you could go on and talk to, you know, Mike. I'm sure there's so many different directions we can take. And one of the things is that we got to the break. I said, I, did, I wanted to dive. We dived into the, the big pitching performances that, uh, you know, the Hampton, the two games, the complete game that, that he pitched in game five against the Cardinals. And I mentioned the Bobby Jones, and I should have expanded upon that. I'm kicking myself a little bit on that. But what I had, as we were prepping and just I was going through some of the things I wanted to talk about with Mike before we, we went on air, he had mentioned to me about that Bobby Jones game where he just quite, quite simply said, look, we just told Bobby. You know, Bobby was nervous. You know, here it is. It's a clinching game against, the as I said in the opening, a really good lineup that the Mets had already uh, done a pretty good job of, of shutting down a little bit. The night before in an extra inning uh, ball game that went, what, uh, 13, 14 innings, that the Agbayani home run game. He just told him, like, let's go after these guys. Like, there was no messing around. There was no, and I'm not anti-analytics, and you heard Mike too, because they I talk about analytics on the show, but sometimes we overcomplicate pitching. The old, let's work fast, let's throw strikes, go after these guys. It's what drives me nuts sometimes, and I think... Getting back to that sometimes takes a pitcher like Bobby Jones, who was a solid back end of the rotation guy, but he was a hittable guy. He wasn't a, a, a number three. I think that's what the Mets envisioned. He went out there and he shut down a Giants offense. And I was looking at some of the highlights, tons of soft contact, tons. So wasn't a ton of, you know, strike three looking, but 
you know, just getting those guys out and uh, very close to pitching the first Mets no-hitter and uh, by a couple of inches over Ventura's glove. But again, you look at how history turns out and you don't know. Ventura catches that line drive. Um, you know, psychologically, maybe it's a different game for Bobby Jones as you get into the later innings because he knows he has a no-hitter. Does he make a different pitch or different decisions? Of course, you you know, it's hard to say, but... When you look at so many things that have to go right, and I said that in the opening, winning requires so many things that have to go right. How close that Mets team was either to, like Mike said, not making the playoffs. Um, I was tweeting out last week, they showed a replay right before Alfonso tied the game in game three against the Giants uh, at home at Shea Stadium. There was a ground ball that Lenny Harris hit uh, with a runner on first. I think it might have been Daryl Hamilton. And it was nearly a double play. And when you look at the replay, McCarver's going through the replay in slow motion. It looks like they just got Lenny Harris at first. Umpire called him safe because it was such a close play. It, it's very possible with replay today, Lenny Harris is called out. Alfonso never gets a chance to face Rob Nen with the tying run on second. Lo and behold, Harris steals a base in the middle of that. That doesn't necessarily happen a lot these days. And Lenny Harris wasn't exactly a speedster. So a lot of small things had to happen. Think about Mets history. Um, you know, maybe they get Ken Griffey before the season starts. And they were going to trade. I think Alfonso might have been in that trade. Uh, during the season, they tried to get Barry Larkin. That fell through. That deal was actually done. We don't know who the Mets were going to give up. But Barry Larkin only had a little bit left in the tank. And uh, he had a very good year that year. Uh, it certainly would have been a, a, an upgrade over, over Bordick, although Bordick's numbers were in Baltimore were very similar when you break him down, but Barry Larkin was, you know, Hall of Famer. Um, who knows what happens? Maybe that's a, a game changer and and what have you. So, so many things happen. And then, obviously, after the season, when the, the Mets had squeezed as much juice out of that orange as they could with that team, and, and they pivoted, and they went in a, a less aggressive direction, and, and then they went in a very aggressive direction two years later, and both strategies didn't seem to work, and, and then Mike towards... You know, the end of his career, obviously, the team went into a, a darker place. And uh, and when they came back, he wasn't part of that. So that was really his last chance. And you never know that. That's why I asked him, hey, look, you know, you got to enjoy the moment. And, and I think David Wright talked about that. I know his memoir is coming out uh, this week. And I know he, you know, and he's talked about that being in the World Series and trying to enjoy it. Because even if it's your first time and you're in your early 20s, you just don't know when you're going to get back. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how all that, you know, turns out. And uh, look, Piazza's numbers in L.A. were always a little bit better. Everyone's talked about that. But when you go to, if you want to just do basic stats, uh, 97, 98, 2000, 95, those are his best on-base plus sluggies, OPS years. I mean, 2000's right up there. You heard him say he was trying to win an MVP that year. Playing a demanding position. Uh, never really was able to get the DH. Wasn't able to play for you know he didn't he didn't play for his base uh, on a, on a Sunday. Uh, went out every day. There was no maintenance days like you hear about today. I think they would you know bring up Bobby Valentine maybe on um, a military tribunal charges for playing a catcher as much as maybe they played him at times. But his ninety eight, which was criticized coming over to the Mets, was very good. Uh, actually, one of his best seasons, and, and you don't f remember that because. You think about the booing and the slumps and the hitting with runners in scoring position and everything like that. Now, a couple other quick things. So we mentioned the website, piazza31.com. All I'm going to tell you guys, 
for some of you that are in my age group, you remember, go to the media video gallery. You want to get a laugh. And you probably have maybe seen these floating around on Twitter. They have the 10, 10, 20 commercials. You got to get a laugh. There's the Hulk Hogan one. There's Alf in a couple of them. There's even a Gary Carter style. I think this one is probably when Mike was out in L.A. Because I don't remember this one. A Gary Carter style shampoo commercial. Almost reminds me of when the old Gary Carter one. If you remember, I don't remember who what commercial Gary did. I don't know if it was Irish Spring. I think this is Pert for uh, Piazza. But I, anyway, go. You get a good laugh. Uh, and for a guy that you know was criticized at times with you know with the media here for not being you know always sociable, you see. And, and I've talked to Mike enough to know that he's he's a very down to earth guy, very sociable, and he loves the Mets and the organization. And that's not the case for everybody who's left here. And you could see that by uh, Mets Heritage, which is a website. Shame on the Mets. And I probably have heard of it, but I went to it for the first time. And I know that, you know, you heard Mike say that he's going to try to, with new ownership coming in, maybe spruce up the Mets' interaction and embracing of their history. And hopefully this is something that obviously will be a sponsorship business side to it. That's that's the game. You you got to make money. But I would hope that there is a real desire to put something together. Not only remember the great moments, the 86s and the 69s, but there's so many great moments, just like this 2000 team and characters and guys that, for whatever reason, you know, a Matt Franco, because of his big hit against the Yankees, only played a few years in the league and with the Mets. You know, Mets fans embrace and love that. So MetsHeritage.com, definitely check that out. Piazza 31 dot uh, com and let me make sure I get his Twitter account right because I always I always kind of you know forget the Twitter account sometimes when I go there but Mike Piazza 31 at Mike Piazza 31 you can check him out on Twitter and uh, and it's funny as I'm talking because Joe Morgan passed away uh, God rest his soul want to talk about analytics and a great player Joe Morgan for all the criticism they are now right now playing on Twitter as we as I'm as I'm speaking the Married with Children uh, segment with Joe Morgan and Mike Piazza. So, so many little things that you forget. I forgot that Piazza was on uh, 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 Married with Children. So that's pretty cool, pretty interesting. And and I want to thank Mike for joining us. And uh, he's been great to this show, remembering uh, a period of time that I grew up watching the Mets. I mean, yeah, I remember the Mets in the 80s, but the 90s Mets were more, as a teenager, you know, my guys and, and built some of the foundations of baseball that I talk about now on this uh, podcast. And I thought, you know, with the Mets being out of it, uh, I'm not completely enjoying the postseason the way it is now. I mean, there's some fun moments, but without the fans and it doesn't feel the same, no knock on, on the teams that are out there now and their fan bases, which I'm sure are having a blast. Uh, I thought it'd be a chance to go into the time vault. And we talked about during the pandemic, there was a lot of interest in this kind of stuff. And, and at times we... You got to balance it out because we have we're here to talk about the current team, and there's a lot that we're going to be able to talk about with the new ownership coming in, and in probably just two weeks or so. But let's go back, take a deep breath during these you know Mets down period, and remember a fun team, and hopefully you, you learned a couple of things. I thought Mike was interest you know was interesting what he said about Bobby Valentine. It was interesting what he said about his thoughts on him winning the MVP and and the goals of that team going into spring training. So I think he gave us some things to chew on. And uh, a relaxing conversation. And that's what this is about. And, uh, you know, I, I do this because I want to remember. But I want you guys for an hour a week. Just take a step back. Uh, and enjoy 
the team and the game. You know, there's plenty of times to be angry. There's plenty of times to to dive into the controversy. There's plenty of times for us to talk team building. That's a big part of this podcast. But it's also about time to have some fun, and hopefully I was able to do that uh, with you guys there. So anyway, want to thank Mike Piazza. You can check him out on Twitter, uh, MP- Mike Piazza 31 Sorry, Mike Piazza 31 on Twitter. Go to Piazza31.com on, uh, on the great internet. And, you know, go to the media section. Some pretty cool stuff there. There's some pretty fun stuff that'll, you know, get uh, bring back maybe some memories, especially if you're a fan of ALF. Of course, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You can send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Till then, take care, everybody.